Well, let me just go ahead and deal with it because I know some of you are thinking, ah, oh, he wore his Carolina blue tie to show that he's still a fan after that, after that game last night. I need to be honest with you, game came on too late. I, I come in very, very early, so I didn't watch it, but in an act of faith or it may be foolishness, I laid out my clothes to include the tie, got up while it was still dark this morning, dressed, came to work, signed into ESPN, <laughs> and found I should have worn a different tie. But I, do have some, but I do have some good news. U.S. Labor Department released the latest job report uh, last Friday, which shows the jobless rate is down to 7.7%. Lowest rate it's been since December of 2008. The, the U.S. added 236,000 jobs in February, a whole lot better than expected, not bad. Not only that, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed at records high, record highs four times this last week, um, closing on Friday, new high at 14,397. That's actually a good number. And this is good news, especially if you, like most Americans, place your hope in the economic power of the United States. I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe those 401ks will recover after all. Maybe Social Security will be around when you retire. Maybe you will be able to buy that second home in Florida and chase that little white ball around the links. Of course, as followers of Christ, we also understand that economic stability means little in the eternal scheme of things. Most of us don't place our hope in the almighty dollar, but in the almighty Lord. But it's easy, though, isn't it? to be sidetracked by numbers, by financial accounting, especially when the credit side looks good, when assets exceed liabilities, when the balance sheet is in the black, when the Schedule C shows a profit. Yeah, I know what that is. When, when, the, when there's plenty of money in the bank to pay the creditors, pay taxes, and still have enough to go on vacation. That's how I measure a good year. Last week, we talked about how many try to load the credit side of their religious balance sheets. They're standing before God with good deeds. We call it a resume. And maybe the good things that I do will outweigh the the debit side of, of sin. And that's the way we think. I got the good side of, of good deeds and I got the debit side of deed, uh, of sin. Here's the question, can you really do that? That is, can your religious efforts be enough to get you in the black before God? Man, let's go back to those 401ks and vacation homes, those bank balances and those nice cars. Can they really bring... Can they really bring the security and hope and joy for which every heart longs? Does the man who dies with the most toys really, really win? One of the spiritual dangers of living in the relative prosperity of the United States is that we can be distracted from the things that really matter most. It's interesting that this confusion of material and spiritual prosperity has invaded 
uh, e even many churches, you know, in the U.S. God wants you to be spiritually and materially prosperous. Trust him for a healthy balance sheet, and you can enjoy the material riches of this life. Well, Jesus actually had some things to say about this focus on stuff. Uh, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Can't serve both God and wealth. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where, where, where moth and rust destroy or thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So, if we as believers don't focus on earthly stuff, what is the greatest treasure that is supposed to capture our hearts? If it isn't the, the, the extra home or the, if it isn't that stuff, what is supposed to capture our hearts? That's the question of the morning. What is your greatest treasure? What do you value most? What is on the top of your list of assets? You see, there are actually lots of good things that we can value you know, that we can hold as treasures. You know, spouses and kids and, and grandkids, looking forward to that. Jobs and careers and houses and lands and, and hobbies and sports teams, maybe not. In fact, it's been said, if, you could, if we could take a look at your checkbook register or your credit card receipts, we could probably determine what you value most. It's also been said that what you treasure most, what you value most, is to you a God. Again, nothing wrong with most of those things that, that I listed, but if anything takes the place of preeminence in your life, the place of God, then you're worshiping, we call it an idol. An idol has been defined as the controlling center of your life. It's right there, right in the middle. It's the last in a series of priorities to go. We could call it your very first passion, whether that is a person or a thing, whether it's your boss or your, your job or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse or your children or a political party or a cause or a movement, whatever, if it occupies priority number one, extreme devotion, love and admiration, what you have is an idol, something that is in the place of God. So... What is it right now? Answer the question. First thing coming around, what is it that you can't that you 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 can you can't live without? What's your passion? When you think of your balance sheet, what do you list as your greatest asset? I know this is church, and we're supposed to know the answer to that question. Everybody knows that it's Jesus, but really. What is your greatest treasure? What captures your heart? If we weren't sitting here and you were on a golf cart, how would you answer the question? See, last week, Paul began to warn the Philippians about some false teachers who were suggesting that you needed to pad the credit side of your religious balance sheet with good works, namely the law of Moses especially as it related to circumcision and Sabbath laws. What they were saying was that Jesus is good. I mean, he's a, he's a treasure, but he's not enough. You Gentiles, you need to become converts of Judaism, starting with circumcision, which, by the way, just so you know, requires that you keep the whole law. 
Now, we call these false teachers Judaizers. Paul called them something different. He called them dogs and evil workers in the false circumcision. They were proud of their religious pedigrees and religious resumes. So, so Paul said, let's compare for just a moment, shall we? And he lists seven items on his resume, or for this week, we'll say seven things on, his, on, the, on the credit side of his balance sheet that made him look pretty good. He was, for example, circumcised the eighth day. He was of the nation of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he says, I'm a a Pharisee. As to zeal, I I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness of the law, blameless. It was a pretty impressive list, actually. If anyone had the right to be confident in his flesh, that is, his own religious pedigree and resume, his own balance sheet, Paul did. But but what did he consider these advantages? Look at the text with me this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul actually begins talking here uh, in accounting language, accounting lingo. And it kind of makes me nervous, i got to be honest, to venture into that arena since the dean of the College of Business, former chair of the accounting department, like the guy has a PhD in numbers, um, goes to our church, but I figure he likes me. Paul likens these, his advantages as credits or gains on a balance sheet. He's just listed all of these religious gains that these Judaizers would have considered to be impressive. I said, this is, this is to his credit. But Paul says in verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, again, accounting lingo, these things I have counted as loss. Literally, I have moved them from the credit side of the ledger to the debit side, from the profit side to the loss side. Now, He's talking about all of those religious advantages that he just listed in verses 5 and 6, what many, again, would consider credit in his standing before God. And so, for example, last week I asked you, what are you doing? What have you done? On what are you relying that you think will give you a good standing before God? What's, what's on your credit side? What is it religiously that you think makes God like you and will accept you? If you answer anything other than Jesus and his gospel, there's a problem. Paul goes on in our text today to say, anything that you're relying on that needs to be moved to the debit side. 
It needs to be considered as loss on the ledger. This is his thesis statement in verse 7. And then verses 8 to 11, which is really just one very long, convoluted sentence in the Greek, he goes on to explain what he means. So our text is going to look a little bit like this. He's going to talk about knowing Christ, gaining Christ, and being found in Christ. And he's all over, so we're going to go all over. But notice, look at that outline, everything is Christ. Because it is true that Jesus is supposed to be our greatest treasure. Put everything on one side of the balance and put Jesus on the other side and he is supposed to tip the scale. Everything, what is everything, doesn't matter. See, in verse 7, he said, all of these things that are supposed to be for my religious gain, I have counted as lost, I moved them what people consider as credit, I have moved them to the debit side. And the, and the wording here is actually very interesting. He says, all of those things that were gain, and the word gain is plural. This list on the credit side, everything that was gain, I have moved to the debit side, and they are lost, and that's singular. Everything on your list that you think makes you good before God, it is nothing but one big fat Loss is what Paul is saying. Verse 7, I mean verse 8, Paul actually says, put everything on the debit side, on the lost side of the ledger, and he goes from whatever things or those things, verses 5 and 6, to all things in verse 8. It doesn't matter what we're talking about, religious duties, good deeds, relationships, stuff. Put it all on the debit side because there is only one thing. Listen to me. There is only one thing on the credit side, and that's Jesus. That's all you've got. In fact, he goes further in verse 8. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. Don't miss the word suffered. It's a very intentional word. The idea is not only has Paul lost all things for the sake of Christ, but he has suffered in doing so. He gave up many of the privileges and advantages listed in verses 5 and 6 that had previously been very important to him. He gave up everything, and in doing so, he suffered. Now, we don't necessarily get that because you can still be a Christian in the good old U.S. of A. and still have lots of stuff. But in many countries of the world, to make a decision to follow Christ means you suffer loss. It might be your status, it might be your job, it might be your relationships, it might be your very life. Like Pastor Saeed Abedini, who I brought to your attention a few weeks ago, who is currently suffering in an Iranian prison, sentenced to eight years simply for being a follower of Jesus. He is undergoing, as the news reports have it, he is undergoing um, intense persecution and torture as they try to get him to recant. He has suffered, suffered the loss of freedom, the loss of his family, and very likely the loss of life. They say he probably won't survive that eight years. So, so we'll talk a little bit more about suffering in a minute. All things, everything, it does not matter what we're talking about. I have given it up, Paul says, suffered the loss of everything. But that's okay, he says, because it's all 
rubbish. Now, in the Greek, this word is shocking. It's the word skubala, and I almost just cussed in church. Serious. This word then was considered an obscenity. It was a vulgar term used to speak of excrement and of refuse, especially street refuse. You have to understand that what Paul is doing here, this is a total renunciation. He says, everything to me is rubbish, it is refuse, it is abhorrent, it is repulsive compared to what? Well, number one, we'll get to our first point finally. Number one, knowing Christ. And Paul gets going here and just piles word on word, phrase on phrase to speak of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Surpassing value is just like it sounds. He is the greatest treasure of incomparable value. He surpasses all else in its totality. He's over everything, surpassing value. Nothing is better. Make a pile of treasure, Jesus is at the top. Not really right. Actually, in Paul's accounting structure here, he says there's nothing else on the pile of treasure, only Jesus. Do you hear what I just said? appear a little bit confusing here. In fact, all of these appear a little bit confusing. When, when Paul says, I want to know Christ, you say, well, wait, well, I thought he already did. I thought he was introduced to Jesus on the road to Damascus 25 years ago. Paul, if you don't know Christ, who does? We have to understand that for Paul, knowing Christ was a lifelong process. There was a sense in which it was already new Christ, but not yet new Christ. I mean, after all, we're talking about the infinite God of the universe. It's going to take a while to get to know him. See, Paul is talking about an experiential and relational knowledge. Don't miss that. It is not enough to know about Jesus. You've got to know Jesus. Listen to me. If, you're, if, you, if you tune out, tune back in. I'll tell you when you can go back to sleep. It is not enough to know about Jesus. You must know Jesus. I have said it this way before. I might know about Michael Jordan. I don't know Michael Jordan. I might know lots of things about him, like greatest player to ever play the game, and he was. Won six rings, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't mean I know him. So, if I call him and say, somehow got his cell phone number, you know, and said, hey, Mike, how about finishing our building? He'd go, uh, like, who is this? Don't know you. So also, if I know about Jesus but don't know Jesus, it means absolutely nothing. And there are lots of people who know about him but don't know him. I, I, I've shared this with you before been a few years, but it's so important. Theologians speak of three levels of faith, this three levels of knowing Jesus. And they actually use three Latin words to distinguish these three levels of knowing, these three levels of faith. The first one is called notitia. 
And it's the Latin word for knowledge. And just like it sounds, this speaks of people who have a knowledge about Jesus, all right? Any world history class is going to teach about a man named Jesus who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago, was purported by his followers to be the Son of God. They, they, they said, his followers said, did lots of miracles, that he was crucified by Roman authorities, that can be proven, and that they said supposedly he was raised from the dead. This man, by his life and his teaching, make no mistake about it, changed the world. So, most people, if they've had you know, History 101, have some knowledge about this historical guy named Jesus. That knowledge is not saving faith. Just because you know the name of Jesus doesn't mean you know him. Second level is called a census, a census. And this moves you a little bit along in the continuum. These are people who have heard about Jesus and actually believe the stories about him are true. They assent, that's a census, they assent that the stories of his miracles and his death and his resurrection did in fact happen. This is not saving faith. This is still to know about Jesus, it is not to know Jesus. Again, this would be like me knowing about Michael Jordan and actually believing that all of the amazing stories about him are true uh, because they're verifiable exactly just like the stories about Jesus, there is as much historical data to support his reality and his life and his death and resurrection as any other figure in history, even more in most cases. But knowing about Jesus and believing that the stories about Jesus are true, together are not saving faith. Third level of faith is called fiducia, which is the Latin word for faith. This is where you have the knowledge of the story of Jesus. That's notitia. You, you paid attention and fell asleep in history. You believe the stories are true. That's a census. But you also believe, catch me, you also believe that the stories are true for you. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, you fly to Christ and embrace him. That, and that alone is fiducia. That is saving faith. This is not only knowing about him, it is knowing him. It is not only having a knowledge of him, it's being in right relationship with him. And there's, this is not rocket science. This comes, you, we grow in our relationship with him by our time spent in the word of God and in prayer. And this begins this lifelong journey of knowing him experientially and relationally. And I'm very, very concerned. The churches across our country, and I have reason to be concerned when 70 to 80% of people in the United States say they're Christians. I have concern that people in churches across our country have knowledge about Jesus and even believe the stories about Jesus are true, but they don't know Jesus. They've never come to saving faith. It begins a lifelong process of experiential and relational relationship with him. Paul goes on in verse 10 to write specifically about how we are to grow in our knowledge of him. And this is not a popular verse for those who want Jesus and stuff on the plus side of the ledger. You want Jesus as your treasure and some other things Look at it, that I may know him, 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's popular. The wording is such that Paul is saying, I want to know him by knowing two things. And the structure is such that the two things are, those two things that he talks about are inextricably linked. First, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And we read in many places in the New Testament that Jesus was raised, his resurrection came about by the power of God. And we read that the resurrection was a demonstration of the awesome power of God. So when Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection, what he is saying is, I want to know the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And this was an awesome power. Listen to the words of Pastor Kent Hughes. 2,000 years ago on the first day of the week, Christ's cold body lay on a chilled stone in the arms of death. His heart was stilled in the icy grip of the grave. Whatever blood remained was congealed in his veins. His eyes were fixed and dilated, and his body was bound tightly with spices and grave clothes. Then, before dawn, his vacant eyes blinked open and coursed with light, focused in glittering light, and with the ease of omnipotence, his body left the wrappings like an empty cocoon. That is the power of God. So when Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection, it means I want to know God's power that raised Jesus from the dead. But it means more than just knowing God's power to resurrect life, I want to know the power of God in my resurrected life. You see, because the scripture speaks of the fact that you have been raised to spiritual life, it speaks of it as resurrection, not just in the future right now. We know that we were dead in trespasses and sins, and when we were dead... God made us alive. He resurrected us by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It gets, it's awesome. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says it this way. For, for God, you know the one who said, light shall shine out of darkness? You know the, the God who at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 said, let there be light and there was light is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do you understand what Paul just said? The same power that created the universe, he said, let there be light, and there was light, is the same power that resurrected you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And Paul says, I want to know God's resurrection power in my life. Because you need it. Because the second thing that is linked to resurrection power of the Christian life, inextricably linked, is the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, these are linked. Suffering and resurrection power are linked like Good Friday and Easter. You can't have one without the other. The reason you need the power of God in your life is because part and parcel of living the resurrected life is participating in the sufferings of Jesus. You want to grow in your intimate knowledge of Jesus? It's going to take participation in his sufferings. That's what Paul says. I can't hear pin, pin drop. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he said, For to you it has been granted. In other words, you have received a grace gift. For Christ's sake, not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Part of the Christian life is suffering for Jesus. And through this suffering to become more intimately acquainted with him. <laughs> Paul told the disciples in Lystra. Lister, he preached the gospel. They didn't like it. And not the disciples, but the people that didn't like it. They drug him out of town. They stoned him, left him for dead. Some scholars think that he actually was dead and that God raised him to life. He stands up and he begins encouraging the disciples who were standing around him, boohooing, and, 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 and says this, uh, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And he says in Acts chapter 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He told the Thessalonians, not to be disturbed by my afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. I know a lot of you don't like predestination, but let me tell you something. You've not only been predestined to be saved, you've been predestined to suffer. He told the Romans, if we are children of God, fellow heirs with Christ, then we must, quote, suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Whatever happened to Jesus plus prosperity on the credit side? You get Jesus and suffering. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. The word fellowship is a word we know. We saw it back in chapter 1. It's koinonia. We kind of like it, you know, or at least we liked it back then. In chapter 1, he said he was thankful for their fellowship, their partnership in the gospel. He said they were partakers of grace. They were fellowshippers together in grace is what that means. Chapter two, he, 2, he talked about the fellowship of the Spirit. We like that. Let's get together for fellowship. Today that means let's get together and eat something and talk and occasionally talk about spiritual stuff. Um, we, we like the word fellowship here at Alliance Bible Fellowship, we even use it in the name of our church. Paul says, I want to know, I want to join in the fellowship of his suffering. Paul actually invites upon himself the sufferings of Christ. No, he wasn't a masochist. He just knew that to know Christ intimately was to suffer like he suffered. You want to be part of that fellowship? You want to be, you, 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 it's, you, you want to grow in your knowledge of Christ? Who can do this? No one apart from the power of God through resurrection that is inextricably linked with suffering. You see now why they go together? In fact, Paul goes on to say, through that suffering, we can be conformed to his death. Lots of discussion about what this being conformed to his death means. All right, I'm going to join this fellowship, and I'm going to be conformed to his death. Could be, number one, yeah, lots of discussion, two primary ideas surface, and I think these are both right. Um, it might mean that as I'm conformed to his death, that I follow him in the way of martyrdom, and Paul did. But it might also be speaking of the fact that I take up my cross daily and die to myself and suffer for his sake. Either way, Paul did not run from suffering. He counted it a fellowship, a bond of life that united him to Christ, helping him to grow in his knowledge of and relationship with Jesus. Last two points very quickly. I'm almost, I've actually preached the message. In addition to knowing Christ, he says, I want to gain Christ in verse 8. 
All these things are rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Again, it's a little confusing. I thought he already had Christ. It's that all already not yet language. Yes, I've gained Christ. But he also said in chapter 1, to die is what? Gain. Because then I get Christ in his fullness. Yes, I've gained him, but not yet all of him. That's what he means in the next verse, in verse 11, when he, he says, in order that I may attain from the resurrection um, uh, from the dead. Lots of people go, what? He, Paul didn't know? That sounds hopeful, not sure. N no, it's just already not yet. Yes, I have been spiritually resurrected, and I look forward to the physical resurrection that has assured me because of what Christ has done. Brings us to our last point. I want to be found in him. Verse 9 when I die, it will be gain if I am found in him. This is a, meant to be a direct blow to those Judaizers who were suggesting that circumcision and keeping the law of Moses were necessary on the credit side of the, debt, uh, of the ledger. Paul says, I had all that. Remember, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to righteousness, keeping those external rules about the law, I was blameless. And he says, but if you add that stuff to the credit side of your ledger, Christ then is of no value. He's removed. I don't want to be found, he says, in my own righteousness. I don't want to drum up some external righteousness from observing a set of rules. Because no matter how good you think you can be, you can never keep the whole law. That's the reason the law was given, to show you that you can't and that Jesus could and you need him. This is what Paul says in verse 9. I don't want to rely on my own righteousness. It won't do. I want the righteousness which is not through works, not through keeping a law, but through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes on the basis of faith. And this is, this is found all over his writings in, in Ephesians and, and in, in Romans. I don't have the time to read those. And in 2 Corinthians, all of those talk about it's not by works, it's not by keeping the law, but it's by receiving the righteousness of Christ. Here's what I want you to see as we close. In these five verses, in these five verses, the name Christ, or pronouns referring to Christ, appears nine times. Five verses, nine times. Everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we will be is because of Jesus. That is why we count everything else as loss. That is why, compared to Jesus, we got nothing. The only treasure we have is him. Listen to these words of D.A. Carson. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come. Most who read these pages, these pages that he's just written about these verses, I suspect will not be greatly tempted to boast about their Jewish ancestry and ancient rites of race and religious heritage, but we may be tempted to brag about still less important things, our wealth, our status, our education, our emotional stability, our families, our, our political or business successes, our denominational alignments, or, or even uh, about which version of the Bible we use. Be careful of people like that. Instead, 
Look around for those whose constant confidence is Jesus Christ, whose confident boast is Jesus Christ, whose constant delight is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of their worship, the center of their gratitude, the center of their love, the center of their hope. Emulate those whose constant confidence and boast is in Christ Jesus and nothing else. Let's stand for prayer.